welcome to episode 36 of Penny Red. My name is Daniel Hodges, writer and designer of Victoria, and your host. This week inside the Roleplay Studio, I've got Jeremy Tidwell, a game designer who just completed work on White Wolf's New World Order convention book for the Old World of Darkness 2nd edition, and can now dedicate all his time to his Doctor Who apocalypse world hack called Companions. You may also know Jeremy as The Witch, who was very, very, very quiet in the uh, recording I made for episode uh, 34. <laughs> we played uh, Witch, um, The Road to Lindisfarne, and uh, that evil laugh is very indicative of uh, the way Jeremy Jeremy played. There, he's doing it again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, I didn't think it was evil. <laughs> <laughs> so, hey, Jeremy, how's it going? Good, thanks. How are you? I'm doing uh, just fine. We're uh, we both at uh, Big Bad Con a couple of uh, weeks, well, a week ago it was, actually, not even. Yeah. Um, and it was, how was the con for you? It was fantastic, but it's like one of my favorite cons that I'm... I know it's only happened twice, but, you know, it's it's just been magic both times. So hats off to the guys who run it. Yeah, Sean and uh, and Kristen and all of their um, helpers. Uh, Eric, who uh, who played in our Witch game there mm-hmm. last weekend, and, and everybody else whose name I'm, I'm not mentioning here, made it into a really, you know, really awesome experience. I haven't been to lots and lots and lots of conventions, but certainly enough to know that uh, Big Bad Con stands out from the crowd in terms of the quality of, of gaming and uh, just the general atmosphere. Oh, absolutely. It reminded me of there's another convention I go up to up in Seattle, if I can plug it for a second. Absolutely. It's called Go Play Northwest. Right. It's a small story gaming con. It's between 60 and 80 people every year. And it's Big Bad Con is a little bigger, but it has like a very similar vibe, which is why I enjoyed it so much. Right. Yeah, I, I, I've been to uh, Origins and Gen Con and, and, you know, a number of the, the other bigger cons and also some, mm-hmm. some smaller cons. Uh, Hamish mentioned Bucket of Dites there in, uh, in New Zealand. But I think that not only is the con small, but um, Sean's very particular about the games that, that run there. So, you know, the, it's extremely unlikely you're going to uh, get somebody not showing up or that the game that you play in is, uh, is not good. And, and any shortfall there is is filled in with some really excellent people doing uh, games on demand. I know that uh, Jason Morningstar was doing games mm-hmm. on demand, the writer of Fiasco. So, um, As yeah. was I. Well, I was going to say, and also, <laughs> can you believe Jeremy Tidwell? Jeremy Tidwell was running games on demand. Man, they, somebody no one ever even heard of. They before. really pulled out all the, uh, pulled out all the stops. Well, uh, that, they'll they'll know shortly because that uh, that uh, White Wolf New World Water Convention book is going to be out shortly, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I believe it's going to be next month, but don't hold me to that. I won't. I won't. But uh, if anybody lives near Jeremy wants to start banging on his door next month, if it doesn't come out, then you'd, you'd be doing me a favour. So, oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> on with the show, then. How many role-playing books do you own, and what was your first? Uh, how many do I own right now? Probably about – probably over 100. I'm a bit of a – a bit of a clothes horse when it comes to that sort of thing. I buy them if they look good and stick them on my shelf and forget about them and come back to them a few months later. So uh, my uh, my game stores love me because I'll just come in and buy something right. almost every time I'm there. My first one was uh, was Dungeons and Dragons. It was right. uh, Advanced D&D back in, this is probably 79, no, probably like 80, 81. Right. I was in fifth grade. Right. And uh, that's, where I, that's where I got the bug, was on old school D&D. Right. And so how did you get started in role-playing? My brother and uh, his very good friend Derek at the time, who has since, you know, I don't think he sees him anymore. Right. But uh, they were playing, and it looked interesting to me. And I like fantasy stuff. Like, I liked, uh, I liked the Sword and, or the, the, the Sorcery and Sandals movies, you know, the, right. 
the 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 Jason and the Argonauts movie, stuff like that. So sure. I, I like the genre, and I took a look at the cover and like, oh, that's what you're doing. That sounds fun. And you right. know, I was 11, so sure. Yeah, it's uh, it's a fairly common thread. I think people's older brothers are uh, are interested, mm-hmm. and, then they, and then they pick it up. I don't think that's exclusive to role playing, but um, I always wonder, you know, like how how the if I could draw a map of you know like like you draw the maps of contagions, you know, like they put, you know, <laughs> like uh, victim zero on there and then watch it sort of spread out. I wonder what that actually looks like uh, around the, around the world. I suppose yeah. somebody with far too much time on their hands might be able to put such a thing together. But, but yeah, back in those days with no internet, I just wonder how it, it spread the way that it did. Oh, that's the, the only way it spread. Yeah, I know. I know I did it that way. Like within like two months of playing it, I asked my parents for it for Christmas and got it, and I was spreading it to the lunch table at school. So, right. and, and was there any um, reluctance on the part of your parents or anybody that you knew in your community for you to be getting involved in Dungeons and Dragons? Surprisingly, no. Um, my parents, um, you know, the, the pri- when people bring that up, the primary thing that they have in mind is re- a religious uh, objection. Mm. And uh, my parents had no such thing because you know we weren't particularly religious growing up, and none of my friends did either. Uh, I read about it for the first time, or f- was found out about it for the first time. I don't know if, yeah, were you in Australia at the time? Uh, uh, no, I'm, I'm, I haven't lived in New- Australia, only in New Zealand. But, oh, New um, Zealand, I'm sorry. Go- no, no, no. <laughs> oh, <laughs> no, no. Sorry. No, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you should be sorry about that. So I'll get another stalker heading to your door right now. I'll have to get, to, <laughs> I'll have to get Hamish to uh, to take you up on that one. Oh, um, he will slap the crap out of me. Don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> so you got uh, so for, you got a news article from Australia or no? It was on sixty minutes, and I didn't know right. if that was over there at the time. And uh, yeah, we had a, a program called Foreign Correspondent, um, and oh, that okay. was sort of like an accumulation of stuff from sixty minutes and also from twenty twenty. So it was a um, we sort of got all that we got cherry picked articles. And I think you know I know mm. where you're going with this, but go ahead. Yeah, it was it was a story about I believe it was two brothers. I believe it was in Texas. Right. Um, I haven't I haven't seen it since. I mean, I was like fourteen when I saw it. Sure. But um, the, if I remember correctly, the, the, one of the, the older brother was disturbed and played mm. the, this younger brother. And when his, at one point when his younger brother's character, like they played a marathon session, and when his younger brother's character died, he shot him. Yes. And, and that caused a huge anti-D&D sentiment mm. nationwide. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. That, that article that you're talking about there is actually on, is on YouTube now. It's sort of split up into two parts, or it might just be one long part now. But uh, mm-hmm. but yeah, that sort of talks about that whole thing. It was a whole bit about uh, Dungeons and & Dragons, and I've, and I've said it before, but um, you know that whole bit really made me question you know, how scrupulous any of the reporting 60 oh, Minutes yeah. was doing about anything. You know, it just made me say, what, this is... And so I'm imagining that people at the wrong, on the wrong side of... Um, a lot of issues um, are being misrepresented. So I guess in a way it, it taught me a valuable lesson, which is, you know, like there's an awful lot more to the to the story than, than you're seeing. And oftentimes, you know, the way that it's being portrayed is is because of the, the prism of, of whoever's publishing the story. And, and I guess mm-hmm. that they need to and say... what their agenda is too. Yeah. Well, that's right. You know, you want to get bums on seats, so to speak. And, mm-hmm. and that was really, uh, that was really an eye-opener. Um, an eye and it became a hot-button issue over there after that. I mean, it was up there with Ouija boards as far as mm-hmm. uh, the, uh, the born-again Christian community was concerned. Right, yeah, and that was the, the other thing I was going to say, is that it's, it struck me as being not... I mean, primarily it was religious, but then it came kind of like, you know, all Rottweilers or all Staffordshire Bull Terriers or whatever are bad. I and, mean, you know, it was just a, a case of a bugbear for people that wanted to worry about what their kids were doing to... to, um, to 
find something to rail against it. At least mm-hmm. so it appeared to me. Yeah. That aspect of it blew over pretty quickly, though. Mm. Like, you, there, there, there were some raised eyebrows in the secular communities, but that didn't last very long. Because I think, I think most reasonable people would watch their kids playing D&D and see, well, you know, they're having a good time, and this is not a gateway to Satan. Mm, right. For sure. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, in, in episode one, I talked to my father about it, and he, uh, and he said he was, he said he was concerned that it could be obsessive, but then he proceeded to do absolutely nothing about it. So, <laughs> so, yeah, so that was, uh, yeah, wow, was, thanks, Dad. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's right. So I'm like, so wait, you thought this was dangerous and could possibly have harmed me, but you just couldn't muster up the the time or the inclination to do anything about it. Ah, uh, single swim, you'll be fine. Yeah, I should take that pistol away from the eight year old. I don't want to get up. It's on the other side of the room. <laughs> I'm sure the safety's still on. Oh yeah. So you played Dungeons and Dragons first. And then what? Uh, for many years. And then other um, TSR products at the time, uh, Boot Hill, Gamma World, Star Frontiers. Because at the time, there, there wasn't a lot. I mean, the only other thing that we played was Traveler. And right. uh, that was like the big contender to D&D because it was a science fiction game. It's like, mm. oh, wow, what is this? Yeah. And then a Western game came out and other things. But like anything from smaller designers, if they even existed at the time, I was utterly unaware of them because my stores didn't carry them. Sure. Yeah, that's the, the, the thing about uh, the, the uh, indie games that we have right now. I think there are a couple of things that push it along. First is that there's a bulge of, of us going through that was sort of into it from the start, but we're kids. Um, and now we've got to the age where, you know, we have, have kids of our own, and, um, mm-hmm. and that sort of puts pressure on the, um, the types of games you can play, how much time you have to commit to them, but also the way that technology has made it possible for small press um, role-playing games to get them their name known out in the in the wider community, but but also to produce them without having to mortgage the house to do so. Exactly. Yeah. Because I believe Kerry uh, Gygax did. Mm. Yeah, I, I don't know too much about the financial side of things, but yeah, back in those days to get an offset printer for for anything was tremendously expensive, particularly when there's no you know there's no knowing if it's going to if it's going to catch on or not so oh yeah so you, no money for market research either mm, so that's no right idea. yeah you're just going to do it and shooting and, in the dark <laughs> that's right yeah do it and unfortunately for for us he did so yeah. um so you did those um games and and when uh, was the next sort of section of games you got into games like say Rollmaster or did you not did you stay with Dungeons and Dragons till you know White no Wolf? I I kind of st- I stepped Rollmaster I actually didn't play that till many years after its heyday right. but uh, my my next phase after that was shamefully Palladium right right played a lot of Palladium and to this day can't tell you why <laughs> <laughs> so how many of those hundred books belong to um, Kevin, I've got Kevin's Embitters. Kevin's Embitters, yeah. yeah. I had a stack as high as a man. Yeah. <laughs> as Kevin himself, <laughs> or? <laughs> I don't know. I've never measured Kevin, but. I'm not sure if he's serving. Is he still with us? I think he might have passed away. Um, I, I don't know that. That, that yeah. I don't know. Um, so, yeah, so you had Palladium and Rifts and, and Heroes and, and stuff mm-hmm. like that, and then. Yeah, I did. Yeah, Heroes Unlimited, Rifts, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, uh, and the Mechanoids, which, God, played so much Mechanoid Invasion. Uh, and then uh, White Wolf came along, and then right. that was my new crack. Right. I went into first edition Vampire back in, like, 87, 88, somewhere in there. Right. And I was off to the races. Right, and so did, which of those games did you, um, did you like the most? Mage, hands down. 
Hands right. down. Played them all, except Changeling. Wasn't keen on, Mage, on Changeling, but Mage resonated with me. It was the first time I actually had a game do that. Mm. Yeah, I, I, that's something that uh, that I've mentioned in the past as well. On Chris Bailey, episode five, you know, he was the the, the GM of the, or the ST or whatever the guy in charge um, of the first Mage game that I played it played in. But that really resonated with me. But um, my my favorite. Um, book was was Wraith, and I, and I talked about that with yeah. uh, Lillian Cohen Mora a couple of three episodes ago. And but I never got a chance to actually play it because um, the thing I really liked about it was the uh, shadow. What was your take on the shadow when you went through Wraith? Um, I only played it a handful of times. But my uh, my 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 perception of the shadow was that it was as and as I believe the text says is the darker side of your character, hmm. like the id, basically. Right. And uh, every once in a while, it goes wild when you lose control of yourself. And it's kind of it's similar to the beast from Vampire and from Werewolf. It's like you know the the nastier sections of the lizard hindbrain coming out to play. Right, right. And and the thing about it that I found really uh, interesting at the time, but also um, in hindsight, is that it's the first time I had encountered in a game uh, sort of the collaborative storytelling between between the players because another player mm-hmm. at the table one of the options for another player at the table is to play your your shadow and to um to lose agency like that requires real trust at the table and i wonder whether a lot of people balked at the idea of the the shadow on that basis um i yes i uh i i know exactly what you mean um i did play at a game once where Basically, the GM told anybody, if you play the shadow, anything you do, you need to sign off from the player. Right. And it's like, that's not quite what we're supposed to be doing, but I can see why you're doing it. But yeah, obviously, your players don't trust each other very much. And that was a big red flag not to go back there. And I didn't. Mm. But it's like, yeah, you've got to trust everybody else at the table if you're going to do that sort of thing. Right. And do you think that... Uh, that game was perhaps ahead of its time because I know that in the game that uh, the witch game that we played and fiasco games that I played with Lenny and and a whole lot of those story type games when you get a group of people together that have some experience and are really ultimately interested in you know developing that um, memorable experience whether that might lend itself perhaps to playing Wraith again. Yes, um, as a matter of fact, some friends of mine and I, of which Hamish is one, are. Off and on, have been kicking around a uh, apocalypse roll tag of wraith. Nice, specifically because of that, because of the the, the blending of of player agency, you know, mm. the, you know, agency for a particular character like that, because it is relatively avant garde considering what we're doing now. Yeah, exactly, and that's that. With my one of my contentions is that, that the reason that wraith was not successful was that it was you know it was ahead of its time. Mm-hmm. Um. So what sort of uh, angle are you uh, guys thinking about for that to Wraith, or is it just still very uh, nebulous at the moment? Oh, it's very nebulous right now. Like, we've been talking about it on Twitter every once in a while, kicking around ideas for what types of moves and what exactly it means to be a Wraith and what the mm. shadow actually is. You know, it's, it's real 10,000-foot level stuff. Right, okay, fair enough. Okay, so changing gears on you here... Uh, your final role-playing uh, supper before you are executed, or uh, as McGay said, you know, like it's my last game that I get to, to play before I just suddenly am not able to role-play ever again. What would you play? That's a tough question. It would certainly be a story game. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I would probably have to say Dogs in the Vineyard. Right, and why is that? Because it would be going back to my story game roots. Um, Dogs in the Vineyard opened my eyes to that sort of thing. Right. About 
about how you can a different ways of of playing a game. And that was like my first steps into the story game world. And, and Dogs of the Vineyard is relatively traditional, uh, but it had some interesting ideas that branched off to these other games. Well, you know, you can do this over in here, especially like um, Polaris. Right. Like that's the next one I played after that. And like that plays weird little games with player agency that I really like. Hmm. And did you find that um, White Wolf, um, the White Wolf games represented another sort of step towards the story game end? Because that was that's certainly the way that, that, that I uh, saw them. Um, although they've got a fairly traditional mechanic, there was a lot mm-hmm. more emphasis placed on the backstory for your character and you're playing out your, your prelude. And, and there were just certain things about it that were just like, hey, you know, that's completely different to... To yeah. the way that that I've role played uh, in the in the past, and then again, you know, when it got to the to the story games, and like you say, there's the idea with the the agency. I was a lot more into Wraith, so I was a little bit prepared for that idea. But um, mm-hmm. I would say yes, that World of Darkness prepared me for that. But ultimately, I think um, World of Darkness promised that, but failed to deliver. Right. Like for in particular, that's the reason why I bring, I, I may say that is that. Um, on the back of the first edition Vampire and many others, it calls itself a storytelling game of personal horror. Right. And it utterly fails in that promise. It is right. not a storytelling game of, ultimate, of personal horror. It's a, it's a social game about vampires clawing for power from one another, from one another and becoming intensely powerful. Like, that's, that's where the rules go. Sure. That's different from the promise of, of, of the blurb. Right, because that's what the beast was supposed to be, right? Like, that whole... Yes. There's nothing more horrifying than, than you know... <laughs> losing your agency um mm-hmm. at least in terms of of the character that you're playing you know like giving surrendering to the beast but as you say the mm-hmm. the um there are even mechanics in the game to sort of defeat that that part of it but oh absolutely um, yeah if you look at it as you become more powerful your stats go up which means that you can combat the beast more effectively and the only way the beast gets more powerful is through diablery which is a specific action in the game which yeah. is not native to the power to the to the progression of advancement right the game that does promise that, that does actually attempt to fulfill that promise is Undying by my, my good friend of mine named Paul Riddle. It's right. a an apocalypse world hack that uses the it uses the rule set apocalypse world to to accurately represent that idea right. of personal of poor, a personal personal horror like the beast versus your humanity is like the core of the mechanics and right. advancement doesn't mitigate that. Nice. So like that was that that that's like that's vampire. That's what I wanted to play right there, and that's why I'm such a you know a cheerleader for for undying. Right, and is that um, that mechanic in um, Apocalypse World, the whole sort of um, drive that it creates in the the characters, is that something that uh, overall you find appealing, or just to, to certain applications? And if so, how does that jive with your idea of uh, your Doctor Who um, hack companions? Oh, absolutely! Yeah, that's why I chose Apocalypse World as the engine for it. Right. The like the things that I saw in common with it's like because I knew I wanted to make a a Doctor Who game because um, I'm a fan. I'm a, right. I'm a big fan. Right. And uh, I wasn't sure how to do it. Originally, I was considering a Cortex hack. Like I was looking at leverage, and it's like, well, these are highly effective characters. Maybe that would facilitate telling a Doctor Who story. But then it appe- occurred to me that. Apocalypse World and Doctor Who have one common thread that is very strong, which is why I chose it. And that in both of them, in Apocalypse World, the game engine drives you to make terrible decisions. 
right. and not terrible as in the terrible outcome, but like decisions where like you're screwed one way, but you're either screwed the other way, just a different flavor of screwed. Right. That happens in Doctor Who quite a bit. Right. And with the magic of the doctor, he can actually kind of fix that. But like the tension of that decision is what drives the plot, the, the, the plot lines in Doctor Who very often and very effectively. And then they come in and fix it because it's a tween show because the doctor's, you know, got his magic brain powers. Right, sure. So then I decided to take the doctor out. Like in Companions, there is no doctor. So sure. like it's more like Torchwood that way, which right. is the Doctor Who spinoff. Right. And it's like that's, that's what I want right there. That sweet spot where you have to make horrible decisions. Incredibly powerful, dangerous aliens are in the mix and things have consequences. And like Apocalypse World delivers that to a T, which is why I chose it. Right. So choosing um, Dogs in the Vineyard as your sort of final role-playing game, is that sort of for nostalgic uh, reasons then? Yes, mostly. Um, I mean, it's a great game to begin with. Like, uh, sure. like I said, it opened my eyes as that, like, what gaming could do. Right. Like, and that those were highly personal stories. Right. You know? Like, you know, they weren't necessarily a personal horror, but they were highly personal stories. It was, it was driven by more by the drama of the characters than by the situation. You know, like by the by the procedural beats. I'm borrowing from uh, from Robin Laws there, but. Um, that's that's really really appealing to me and yes nostalgia is the reason why i would go there but for that reason right so talking about indie games what's your definition of an indie game oh um it's kind of like art or pornography i know it when i see it um there are some guidelines some broad stroke guidelines like i guess the first one being that it can't really be associated with a major game production studio like pathfinder is not going to be indie right and as much as I love it, White Wolf's never going to be indie. It's like people laboring in their basements doing something they love for something other than money. Right. Does it have any other connotations in terms of what you might expect to find in an indie game other than perhaps uh, poor production uh, value? <laughs> well, I think the poor production value is something you have to ignore. But yeah, I think true. what it does bring to the table is a new way of looking at things, in particular mechanics. But, you know, not just mechanics, just like the nature of what a character is, the nature of the, of the dynamic between a central authority like a GM and some a personal agency like a player. And it plays around with those things. It's like, you know, there's a different way to do this, and here's how I'm gonna, I want to do it. And the truly genius games... And not to, you know, to, to totally trumpet um, Vincent Baker here, but like he's he's hit the mark more than once yeah. is that it, it turns it turns things on its ear and it still works and it's beautiful. Right. So what causes a role playing game to die before the story finishes? In my personal experience, um, it's a lack of investment in the story. And that can happen for a multitude of reasons. Uh, the one most common to me, and it's the mistake, I, and because I'm the one who made the mistake, is a lack of preparation on part of the GM or selecting a game that requires a lot of preparation and not doing it. Uh, sometimes exhaustion at the table can do it. Like um, like you said, as we're adults now, we have limited time to do it. And sometimes, you know, we get tired because we're getting older. And mm-hmm. that can cause it to die on the vine and be difficult to pick it up later. But, yeah, lack of investment for whatever reason is, like, the number one killer. And why do you suppose that some gaming tables um, have a rule that you're not allowed to talk about other games at, at the table? Because that's been something that, not necessarily on the show, but I've discussed with people previously, that oftentimes the new, the new thing on the horizon is enough to kill off the old thing before it's really had a chance to, to flourish. Yeah, um... Yeah, because it, it, like, you can get off on tangents that can get people excited about something other than what you're doing. 
I can see I've never had that rule because, like, most of my friends and I were always like, someone steps in and is like, okay, let's focus on what we're actually doing here, and we'll talk about the other game later. Right. And everyone's like, okay, yeah, we'll do that. But sometimes that, you know, that might be necessary, and I can totally see why. Right. And do you think that's just part of the, the hobby, or is that actually something that you should uh, you should try to avoid? Like, is it okay for games to only gun for, go for a couple of sessions? You had some good laughs, you made some bad jokes, and ate some pizza, and then came back in next week, and you're doing something different? Or do you have... Uh, a uh, a responsibility as a as a game master to to make sure that to drive that story through, or is it really just a case of we're all here to have fun and whatever we're doing is okay? The latter. Um, it's a game, and games are supposed to be fun. Right. And if a game stops being fun for whatever reason, you stop playing it. So, if you could role play with four people living or dead, who would they be and why? And you can't choose uh, deceased families so you get to see them again, or game designers. Uh, no, you can't even choose Gary Gygax, and you also can't choose the people you're currently playing with, because obviously those are the yeah. four, or four or five most awesome people you're, you're, that you could possibly play with. So discounting all of those, who would you choose to role-play with and why? I've got a couple of answers to that. Um, not necessarily a, a laundry list of four people, but at some point I'd like to play a game with my parents. Because they know I've been doing this for 25 years, and I've never done it with them, and I don't think they even know what goes on. Right. And uh, my dad asked me, I was working on a, a game that, not Companions, it's another game I've got on the back burner that I was telling him about. And he actually said, wow, that sounds interesting. It's like, wow, you know, my dad. <laughs> yeah, but you know, my dad's a Reagan Republican. I don't know how well that would go over, cause, and he's also in his 70s and set in his ways. But I think he'd have a good time with it. Yeah. Uh, the other one is something, uh, it's something I posted on Google plus the other day. I had one of my, my, one of my favorite movies is, um, the Incredibles, the, the Pixar movie. Right. Just because of the, the characters in that movie, they're so well defined. Yes. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, I, I, I was like, I had a wild hair to watch it like about a month and a half ago, maybe, no, maybe a month ago. Right. And I bought it on online and I went and watched it. And it was, you know, everything I thought it was be. And like, you know, there's points in that, in that movie. I just... I just cry like a baby at points in that movie because it's yeah. just so well done. Yeah, sure. Like the scene where Mr. Incredible thinks his family just got shot down in the plane. Right. And the absolute panic on his wife's face as she realizes there's my kids are on this plane and someone's shooting missiles at me. Like, that's like, right. oh, oh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. the movie's done. The credits have rolled. And I'm like, I would like to play, I would like to pitch Dungeon World to the guys who wrote that movie. Right. And not necessarily as a game, but play the game with them to show it to him. But it's like, this is an engine for making an interesting story. And then I started writing out like five characters for Pixar's dungeon world. As right. a result of it. <laughs> but yeah, I, that, like other creative people who I think would benefit and also like maybe play with some improv people too. Like there's a lot of improv people in the, in the hobby. There's a fellow by the name of Remy Truer who I met at uh, go play Northwest up in Seattle. Who's from the uh, Atlanta improv scene. And he's a, he's a friend of, um, of Jason Morningstars right. and playing just, he, he came up with this one game that was just off the cuff improv, no rules. Just like, here's what you do. It's the yes. And kind of methodology that comes from improv. And it's like, and let's just roll with it. And right. it was one of the best games I've ever played. So I'd like to play with some improv people too. Right. And who would you get through the voice acting for your dungeon world Pixar movie? Uh, John Goodman's got to be in there somewhere. Right. And what sort uh, of character would he play? Uh, I'd have him play uh, the fighter, right? And he and uh, gee, who else would I? That's a good question, man. I'd have to think about that. I don't know off the top of my head. But they have such an amazing. Oh, John Ratzenberger, of course, but he's in every Pixar movie. That's right. But I mean, I'd have him be someone other than an ancillary character. I have him be like a primary character, right? You don't think they would break the magic of John Ratzenberger and Pixar? No, 
No, I don't think so. Think he could carry a main character? Sure. He was Cliff Clavin. Of course he can carry a main character. <laughs> yeah, he's, uh, yeah, I liked uh, Cliff Clavin. I wonder um, whether, you know, that ensemble cast and, and Cheers work, but the, Cheers work, but the reason I bring it up is because I was, um, an anecdote that I that I read or perhaps heard about about Henry Winkler uh, when <laughs> Happy Days was huge in uh, in the early eighties, um, or at least the early eighties is when I saw it. I don't think it was the seventies, but but maybe it was it like seventies at its peak here, but it lasted into the early eighties. Right. Okay. So so around then some somewhere, but they said to uh, they said to him, okay, we want to we want to spin off the Fonz and have a, have a show all about all about Fonzie. And uh, Henry Winkler, I think, said, "No, I think that's a that's a bad idea because the reason that Fonzie works and the reason everybody loves Fonzie is because he's kind of like just that little piece of awesome that mm. um, that people want. But if you give them, you know, Christmas Day every day, it stops being special and it loses its allure. So mm-hmm. he actually said, "No, I don't. I, I think that's a bad idea, and I won't." And I won't do it. Do you think that, um, and that's what, why I ask about John Ratzenberger, do you think that you know, his particular uh, flavor of, of humor lends itself more to being just like a little bit here and there rather than you know, carrying a, a major part? Well, I think he'd be a part of an ensemble cast, but he'd be like one of the primaries. Sure. Like as in a Dungeon World scenario, there's going to be five primary characters. Right. But um, I agree with you about that, about the Fonz, and I agree with Henry Winkler, too. It's like, you know, he's got to be the foil for the squares. Mm, but, that's right, yeah. Yeah, but I don't think that's necessarily the case for uh, for John Ratzenberger, because, you know, he he was the central focus of many, many scenes and cheers that's and true. just carried it off brilliantly. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Absolutely. So he's got the chops. Oh yeah, for sure. No, I don't I don't doubt his acting ability one one little bit. I just uh, was wondering yeah. about the style of character. Um I agree with you, by the way. I'm just, you know, trying to make things interesting here. So <laughs> so any uh, any ladies? Did you have any lady characters lined up for your Dungeon World uh Pixar movie? Oh yeah. Um not, oh, I have to look it up. But yeah, the the Paladin was female right. um or a woman, sorry. Females uh, females ins- is insulting when you're speaking of a woman. So yes, the paladin was a woman. Uh, the thief Look was you a man. Being politically correct there. Yes, the thief, the fighter, and the cleric were men. The paladin and the magic user were women. Oh, and the, the magic user, like the the, the story revolved around uh, a dragon who is uh, he's 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 a dragon. He's got a dungeon inside of a volcano, right. and uh, he's spreading plague. That's like one of the main drivers for right. for the game, like uh, over the movie, and uh, like. The, the 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 paladin and the cleric are both with the same church, and their flock has started worshiping the dragon. That's their motivation. Right. Uh, the the dragon's sickness is killing the thief's sister, and he's there to steal the cure. The the magic user is the dragon's daughter and wants to steal his power. Right. Right. Well, uh, Pixar, if you like the sound of that, you know you can uh, contact <laughs> Jeremy. He's uh, <laughs> if you're listening. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like you've given that more than just a, a casual thought here and there. But um, it's interesting that you mention that because it leads me to a um, an anecdote from uh, Big Bad Con, which uh, which won't be too specific and hopefully will be enjoyable. Is uh, that I was playing a game of um, Fiasco with uh, with Lenny and uh, Morgan Ellis and. Uh, a nice uh, a fella and his and his wife, who I'm hoping will be on the show at some point. But mm-hmm. um, the story was a uh, the White Hole playset for Fiasco. And before we started, though, we got to talking about you know because 
the game tends to lend itself to, you know, well, I mean, the, the, the tagline is, um, you know, making poor, making poor choices, but mm-hmm. it tends to lend itself to more adult themes and things that if they were in a film, would it be like NC-17 or R-18 or whatever your particular um, mm-hmm. rating system is in your country. But we got to talking about, I wonder what a game that would be like if we set the, the tone at Toy Story. You certainly have to tone down the outcome tables. Sure, well, you can make a playset for that, but do you think it yeah. would work when you had less to work with in terms of uh, where you can and can't go? Oh, absolutely, yeah, because constraint drives creativity, which is kind of sure. it's kind of counterintuitive, but it really does. Yeah, when you absolutely. take some stuff off the table, what you have left with, you're going to build a lot more with. Right. Yeah, that's the that's the thing, isn't it? And I know that. And going back to what you're saying about the Incredibles and about the the scene where Mr. Incredible uh, thinks his his family's dead, and Mrs. Incredible realizes they're getting shot at, and so forth. You know that mm-hmm. that that human element. But then, I think that as good as the Incredibles are, there's nothing that has and likely ever will top the scene where they're going into the furnace in Toy Story Three. Oh yeah. Oh the, the, God, that <laughs> scene. Oh, I cried like a baby. Yeah, it's that film just works on on so many levels, right? Like it just just yeah. gets everywhere you turn. There's no, there's nowhere safe. Right? I mean, it's a it's a kid's story, but it's like the loss of youth and you know, like all that all that type of stuff. But yeah, the scene where yeah. they're like going like because Woody throughout the whole thing, you know, Woody's all you know spoilers here. Woody's all all upbeat, you know, throughout all of these. Always like the cheerleader for everything, and like he's you know, and, and then at the end, you know, when they're going down there, and, and Buzz gives gives him that look, and it's just a um, so yeah, we're not going to make it look. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And it's kind of like you know, you know, thanks for being you, but let's you know, let's go out together. It's uh, it's brilliant. But then also, I was watching Toy Story one um, a couple of days ago because my daughter's got a fixation with all the Toy Story movies. But and and mm-hmm. fortunately, because you know, because they, <laughs> they they do they do bear rewatching. But just I'm just trying to imagine the the meeting where they're going through and they're they're reading through or, the, or they're, they're thinking about Toy Story three, and then some guy. Goes <laughs> the claw, the claw will save them from yeah, the. That's... And I'm just like, and everybody would go, that's perfect. Yeah, that's that's perfect. But it's got to be the aliens running it because they know that, how. That, that's right. Yeah, and it's and it's yeah, it's just it's just perfect. And I wonder what that because yeah. very occasionally I get that feeling when suddenly a whole bunch of things click together. And and we were prior to that game, we were discussing you know how. Um, human beings are very good at finding patterns, even when none exist, and then then building mm-hmm. on those, those patterns and just you know that that feeling of like you know what I just strung together three disparate elements, and it makes perfect sense. You know that that moment of creation of, of mm-hmm. um, yeah, and that uh, that's, you found uh, the links that weren't necessarily there. Yeah, that's right, and and yeah, so that's uh, so yes, yeah, so I really like that that claw piece, but. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you said you had two two halves to that uh, two two halves of the answers to that uh, question. The four people you're going to play with. You, you chose your mum and dad, and then you mm-hmm. and you thought maybe you want to you want to pitch the game to the Pixar people. But do you have any actual uh, people specifically that you would want to role play with? No, because um, I read the the question when when you sent it to me, and it's like, wow, I can't think of anybody except maybe you know you know the this the off the cuff you know goofy answer of you know Abraham Lincoln, why not? But, <laughs> yeah, <that's> uh, right. <laughs> but I never really thought about how it. do you think Abraham Lincoln would be? Do you think he'd be he'd be up for? He seems like a guy that could perhaps enjoy a good time. He was at the Ford Theater after all. He may have yeah. regretted it, and maybe he said to himself. 
I don't know what the story is with these. Like, this is my best Abraham Lincoln uh, accent. Um, <laughs> I don't know what the story is with these people that want to. He sounds a bit English. Um, it, what the way is they want to go to the theatre. You know what? I'll give it a try. What's the worst thing that could happen? Wow. <laughs> As a matter of fact. Um, yeah, I think, yeah, you know, not knowing that much about them, because, you know, back then they didn't really talk about private mm, lives, mm. but uh, I think anybody who enjoys good fiction would enjoy story gaming, but there's there's certainly a cultural uh, hump to overcome. Hmm. Um, do you think that story gaming requires um, role-playing experience, or whether actually role-playing experience might be an impediment to you playing a game like, say, Fiasco or, or, um, or which? Uh, I would say they use the same toolkit, but it's all about the mindset of the person using the tools. And in that mindset, someone who's only played D&D, and I'm, and I'm not saying this theoretically, I've seen it happen. Traditional role-playing gamers sometimes have a lot of problems jumping that, that gap. Hmm. I personally didn't because when I played traditional role-playing games, I was cherry-picking and looking for moments that story game engines readily provide. Right. So that was an easier transition for me. It was like, it was like going home for me. Mm, mm. But I've seen other traditional role players just not really grok what needs to be done and what, mm. why we're there. Yeah. I know that uh, the first few times I played games like that, you know, I was, I was on board with the idea, but I was quite reticent about, you know, like, am I, am I doing too much here? Should I be, should yes. I be sitting back some more? How much do I want to go with, with the idea that, that I've got? And, and that, um, and it came up in, in which, you know, there was the scene between you and, um, and Jason's character where the two of you were, were like you, you were trying to seduce him in order to, to, to escape. And then I was playing the brother who was supposed to come along and see it. And I'm like, when do I, I like, cause that's the perfect beat to jump in there. But, but mm-hmm. Jeremy, this is the age, the idea of the game is this is Jeremy's scene and I, he might have something else that he wants to do. So can I, can I jump in here or not? So I'm like, how do I, mm-hmm. you know, when's the right, when am I doing too much? When am I foisting what I see as the perfect beat to jump in on it? How do I it, join that with what Jeremy wants? You know, it, it gets back to trust what we were talking about earlier mm-hmm. and with two strangers and we were strangers at the mm-hmm. time. It's like, well, I, yeah, we, I don't know. Maybe yeah. there is, maybe there isn't. But there is a commonality to story gamers, which with experienced story gamers, that you know that if someone who knows what they're doing comes in at the right moment, taking your agency away can be awesome. Hmm. Taken in a direction you never even thought of opens up a thousand different possibilities you never even contemplated before yeah. that person came in and said a single sentence. Yeah. So I always encourage it. But, yeah, traditional role playing has very heavily fortified lines that you don't cross. Mm. And that kind of experience is can make it difficult to transition into story gaming from traditional role playing. And I think it's the I think it's the it's it's ironic to bring it up. I think it's the single biggest hurdle mm. is knowing where your agency begins and ends because it's a real fuzzy line in some story games intentionally. Right. Yeah. That, yeah. That's uh, yeah. You hit the nail on the head there. Um, so hell exists, and you are sent there condemned to play a certain type of uh, game. Uh, for all eternity, what would it be and why? It doesn't have to mean like a game system that you don't like, but a, uh-huh. a sort of a game uh, that plays out in a in a, in a certain way. Um, I've said like creeping horror or hack and slash or something like that, but I'll give you a for instance. I played a uh, I played a game um, at a convention. I won't give you too many specifics, but basically there was a, <laughs> a never ending stream of of bad guys. I'm like, okay, this is a good setup, and then I found out 
you know, like two hours in that I was still killing bad guys. And <laughs> it doesn't turn the hose there was, off. There was actually no, there was actually no story coming. So that would be, that would yeah. be one of my, my ideas of, of hell, you know, like where you never actually ever made any progress. But what about you? Mm-hmm. A similar answer. Um, my definition of gamer hell is sitting down at a table for all eternity to play with Munchkin Power Gamers. Right. Because <laughs> we're there for totally different reasons. And that's not that their way is wrong and my way is right. It's just that that's not my idea of fun. Yeah. Well, it's your that's, personal hell, so. Yeah. It's boring. Yeah. It's like, yeah, let's see what level we can get to. I don't give a crap about level. Let's see what kind of messed up stuff can happen. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so who would you be playing with? Uh, <laughs> probably some of the kids I went to high school with. <laughs> Because, you know, I was I was fully into that mindset, too. I uh, I was into that. I kind of liked that. But I was also looking for it's like, yeah, for, from like in my teenage years, I was I liked the diversion of like a story moment. And the first one happened in travel that I ever had happened in a travel game. A friend of mine ran when I was like 17. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were we did. We went through travel character generation, which is really, really crunchy. And mm. you can die and have to start over. It's 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 a thing. <laughs> and uh, yeah. I don't but- know if you ever played first edition traveler. Um, you're just you're just showing up. Um, how little uh, you know about my show here, Jeremy? I've oh, told yeah. the story of my very first role playing experience. I don't know ad nauseum now, and I won't repeat it now. Suffice to say, the line um, "and your character can joy- die during character generation" resonates particularly strongly <laughs> with me. <laughs> All right, so you know what I'm talking about. I I am familiar with that aspect of it. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So we got through that. We started playing, and he started playing this storyline where. We discovered a planet in the subsector we were in had a cloning facility on it. They were cloning an army. Mm-hmm. And my character had mustered out of the Marines. He was in his 50s. And he met this girl in a shop where he wanted to buy. Because he, he had never had a childhood. So he wanted to kind of have a childhood. Mm-hmm. So he wanted to spike his hair up and listen to the local metal band, which sure. was this band called Crusher. We decided it was the name of this band. Right. And this girl's a huge Crusher fan. And my character became friends with this 17-year-old shop clerk girl who got dragged into the story. Turns out her brother was part of the clone bats. was like right. they were cloning her brother over and over to die over and over and over again. And right. she wanted me to go in there and stop it. Right. And, like, had I been, like, a year younger, I'd been, hell no. Let's go find some aliens and blow them up. I don't care about this chick. Sure. But in that moment there, it's like, wow, this is something different. Mm. This is something different. This, this is like he cares about her. Yes. And that's where it kicked off for me. I think that really is the genesis of why, why I got into story gaming so much later in life was that scene in that game right there. Yeah, you can. You get interesting. You can you can pinpoint it. I, I don't have any. Uh, I don't have anything that uh, that I can point to to say you know why I, I like something in particular. But yeah, that's that just suddenly seeing the possibilities. And and mm-hmm. did was your game master or storyteller or whatever it's called for Traveller? Were they uh, were they? Did they pick up on that or did they like? Uh, yeah, and you do that, and that's they did great. He did, yeah. He picked up on it because that's why he dragged her more into the plot. She was a throwaway until that point, right? And then he saw that that I was really kind of hooking into this character and and drawing her out, and wanted to know more about her, and like kind of like fully flesh her out as a person. He's like, okay, well, let's threaten her and see what happens, right? So, um, who is your favorite villain, and why? In media, do you mean? Sure. Yep. Any media at all. I mean, if you want to choose a real person, you can you can go for it. Well, there's a certain class of villain that I like that I always try to have in my games. I like the villain who's a human being who's doing what he's doing because he's got really good reasons for doing it. Yes. Yep. And like he was driven to it possibly by tragedy in his own life, and now, 
And now he's doing what he's doing or she's doing what she's doing because she's driven to it by her, by his or her own emotional extremes. Right. And I'm trying to think of an example of that and I'm blanking while you're, uh, while you're mulling that over, that's uh, one of the villains that I've bring up a number of times is, is Hannibal Lecter. And he kind of has a, because the books were written, uh, not quite in reverse order. You Mm -hmm. don't really discover that Hannibal is the way that he is because of the fact that have you read, um, the very first um, Red Dragon. No, no, the one preceding that. There's a there's a prequel even to that one. In that book, um, you learn the genesis of his uh, particular um, psychoses and and why he is the way that he is. And that transformed him a little bit from who he was, the type of villain that he was for um, for me from sort of Silence of the Lambs onward. Um, mm-hmm. So while you're still mulling it over, the, the the thing about Hannibal, at least from Science of the Lambs on, is that you like him as a villain because there are things about him that you can admire. You obviously can't totally sympathize or empathize with with mm-hmm. him, but you know, like you admire the fact that he's polite and he's got his own set of rules and he's smart and all that type of stuff. Those mm-hmm. are all things that you can you can look up to, and so in that respect, he's a he's a, a, a good villain because you can you know you, you can see things in him that you would like to possess yourself. But then going to what you were just saying, you know, like the reasons why he is the way that he is, you know, like mm-hmm. he's he's damaged. You know, I mean, obviously he is to be the way that he is, but, yeah. but having that first book. Um, Somewhere in there as a human being. That, that's right, and you can see why yeah. he is based upon the, the stuff that happens. I won't, I won't spoil it for you, but um, have you thought of anybody that yes. fits that? Yes, two have come to mind. The first one is Magneto, Eric Lyncher. Right, sure. Especially, and I knew his backstory because I grew up, X-Men was my favorite comic book growing up. Right. But the depiction in the first movie, the Brian Singer movie, uh, where the very opening scene is a young seven-year-old Eric Lyncher going into Dachau. Right. And using his powers for the first time, like it's not supposed to manifest till you're, uh, till you're in puberty, but they did for Eric early and that probably burned him a little bit, right. like marked him. And they manifest as a seven year old trying to save his parents from being, being separated from him at the gates of Dachau. And like, you right. see like at the end when the, when the, the gates have curved in, cause he's used his power to crush them a little bit. Sure. Eric Lencher had a reason for doing what he was doing hmm. because the, of what the American, he was a reaction to what the American government was doing. Right. And, you know, it was horrible and despicable and people died. But, you know, if I were him, I can't say I would choose any different. Right. And the other one is um, more recently from, did you see Kick-Ass? I have seen it, yes. Red Mist. Okay. The, 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 the gangster's son, who all he wanted to do was make his dad happy. And then before he could manage, he was on the cusp of yes. proving himself to his father. I'm not a punk kid anymore. I'm a, I'm a man and you can trust me. But on the very cusp of doing that, Kickass took his dad away from him. Right, right. Yeah. And that's what drove him to being a villain. And he's got a damn good reason for doing it. And he's got a damn good reason for hating Kickass. Yeah, that, yeah, for sure. That, and that sort of leads into a, another type of, of villain that I've talked about in the past. This person where the only reason that you know that they're a bad guy is because the story is being told through the the eyes of the, the hero. If the story was told from their perspective, then you know they would be they would be the hero of their story. And along with that, uh, they have they're making the. Um, Maleficent uh, movie. What, what have you heard about that at all? It rings a bell. I, I'm not sure though. Yeah, they're, they're telling the story from her perspective. So I'm really interested to see, you know, whether right. it's going to be good. Whether it's whether they're going to actually like go. You know what? We've got something here. Let's pull out all the stops and make it right. so that we can actually see her as the hero of her story, or whether we, she's ultimately going to be, 
know, where the or a tragic figure, yeah, guy. yeah. It's from like in Wicked, have you have you ever read or seen Wicked? I haven't, but I, I I have the desire to go to New York City at some point. I've not been yet, and to to see Wicked there, yeah, because yeah, that takes the idea of like it turns the Wicked Witch of the West into a tragic romantic hero mm. heroine. Yeah, that's that's the main reason I want to see it. I like that the ambiguity of uh, yeah, yeah. How it messes with perceptions. That's something I find really mm-hmm. really interesting. And in a game, if you play that, it's a straight villain. And then, like, in Act 2 somewhere towards the end, you slip in just one little piece of evidence. It's like, this is a human being you're dealing with. Mm. Oh, yeah. And you make them doubt. You make your players doubt for a moment if it's right to do something here. Yeah. And you make them kind of partially regret doing it later on. That's right. Those are the best That's, oh, absolutely. Yeah. If you get the players to, to realize that everything's not black and white. In so many games, you know, it's like, this is wrong and this is right. So are you, you know, like, what is it that you're actually doing is, is unequivocally, you know, for good. You know, for good. I'm doing this for good. Um, but if you can make it a little bit grey and you can see mm-hmm. consequences, I think that's something that that everybody um, would benefit from doing if they don't do so now. Is you know creating that ambiguity for mm-hmm. the villains. And that was one of the reasons that I that I wrote that question. So right. if you had to choose between Hogwarts or um, uh, the X Men school, which school would you choose to go to? Uh, Xavier. Xavier, just because I I have a personal preference for science fiction over fantasy. Sure. That's the only reason, because Hogwarts does look interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So who's your favorite hero then? Wow. Uh, My favorite hero. That's a tough call, because heroes aren't as interesting as villains. Heroes are kind of disposable. They're like uh, like our avatar or or, uh, the the viewer's avatar in the story, you know, someone that you're supposed to identify with. So... Mm -hmm. I don't know. I don't think about them as much as I think about the villain. Uh, I like John McClane from Die Hard. Yeah, that's the one I was going to bring up. And what is it about yeah. uh, John McClane that you like particularly? He's just trying to get through his day. He's right. unintentionally and accidentally awesome. <laughs> that's right. So do you think that it's that, that, that he's not exactly... I mean, he is the hero, but that he's not... You know, he's like you say, he's just trying to get through his day, and you sort of empathize with him because it's kind of like a... like. You are yourself. It's not like you you stride up purposefully to the to the building, stand there with your legs apart, and put your fists on your hips and say, "Okay, I'm here to to save the day." You know, like it's harder to identify with somebody like that. But John McClane, you can see yourself more in because he is more of an everyman hero. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, because like you know, the guys who do it for moral reasons aren't as interesting. He's there. He's trying to get his wife back. Sure. He's trying to prove to his li- to his wife that he loves her and that he's worthy of her. And what's more perfect than than like I killed all the terrorists in the building to save you. Right, right, for sure. So if you had to choose, uh, Indiana Jones or mm-hmm. John McClane? Oh, John McClane. John McClane, hands down, because for those reasons. Like, Indiana Jones becomes more fleshed out later on in the story, and he's got the thing with Marion that suggests a backstory, but we never see it. Right. John McClane wears his heart on his sleeve. Right. And I, I like that. Right. So if you choose between Indiana Jones then and Han Solo? Oh, wow. Um I go with Han Solo for the same reason. I think Indiana Jones is a bit of a cardboard character. He's kind of a stand-in. He's an interesting stand-in. Right. And he does what he does very well. But Han Solo, yeah, he had the love interest story that developed with Leia that's like you're kind of rooting for him. And mm. no such luck with Indy. And he just always kind of gets the girl which she's there to be had. Right, right. And uh, my last Harrison Ford question uh, was still with, um, still with Han Solo. Han Solo or uh, Decker from uh, Blade Runner? Decker. Yeah, why is that? 
because he's darker and he's more human, despite the fact there's questions about his humanity, he manages to be more human than the people around him. Right. Like Deckard, is, even if he wasn't, okay, I'm sure you're familiar with the, with the, with the is Deckard a Republican question because mm, sure. of all the hints. And, and eventually, uh, Ridley Scott has admitted that, yes, he was a Republican. Oh, nice. And, and he did put like those scenes like you see where you see his eyes glow when he's talking with Rachel. Right. That's like one of the things. And the, and the bit with the unicorn and the and director's cut version. So, yeah, that kind of amplifies what I'm talking about. But even before Ridley Scott dropped that bomb on everybody, hmm. Rick Deckard, even as a human, was still a emotional person surrounded by assholes. Yes. Yep. He managed to be human in that world that turns everybody into an inhuman monster. Right. He managed to maintain his humanity because he, I mean, at the very beginning, you know, as a human being, because he stopped being a cop because the cops were murderers. Right. He yeah. gave up personal power and ambition because, you know, he couldn't stomach it anymore. And that made him a human being. Yeah. And it, that creates some interesting other questions, though, doesn't it? If you, if going in, knowing that he's a, he's a replicant, you know, what, uh, what the motivations yeah. are between the people that, that created him. Yeah, for sure. Definitely. And going towards uh, uh, bombshells and stuff like that, uh, have you heard about the um, or read about the the end of the Sopranos? Yes. And what do what you? I've so seen spoilers it. here for uh, for some yes. people that, are, that are, haven't watched the Sopranos yet. But what do you what do you think about the uh, the ending of that? I think it was executed perfectly. Mm, because yes. oh, 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 pun intended. Hi all. Um, <laughs> Yeah, partially, but um, because it had come to its summit of mm. tension. Because The Sopranos, like many other shows in the genre, is about tension. Mm-hmm. Like um, Sons of Anarchy is about tension. Um, I think it's some of the other ones. Well, it, 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 it achieved the apex of its tension. The family doesn't know. Like, they're getting together as a family meeting, and they don't know who's going to kill who. And it's the family. Mm-hmm. And in that moment, it's the perfect tension. Like they're both kind of staring, all of us, everybody's staring at each other, wondering what's going to happen next. It doesn't matter what happened next. And if we knew what happened next, it would pale in comparison. So yes. they went out on top. Yes, yeah, for sure, for sure. So um, you've done well there, actually, not to uh, not to give away the uh, give away the ending. Very good. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, what's your worst con experience and why? And the reason I say con experience is because, um, much like on the internet. Um, mm-hmm. Not talking about big bad con here, but say for example Gen Con or, or Origins, everybody that goes is anonymous, so that tends to bring out the the worst behaviour in people, not even the worst behaviour, but just a, an unpleasant uh, experience or perhaps an, a, a funny experience that is funny because it's unpleasant. Okay. Well, um, I never really had an experience at a con where someone was was a dick. Oh, good. You know that, that whole "don't be a dick" vibe that that, that Wheaton is brilliantly putting out there. Mm-hmm. I've never seen it, and I feel fortunate that way. Yeah, yeah, I'm the same way. So my worst con experience was my own fault, <laughs> <laughs> and I was I was running a game of companions up at the con I was talking about, Go Play Northwest, this last sure. year, yeah. and the game fell flat on its face, and it was my fault. And uh, the reason it happened was that I rushed things. Right. I had I had mistakenly chosen because I've written multiple scenarios to play at cons. The one I had chosen to run is too long for a con, right? And I kind of railroaded the players because I panicked a little bit. Sure. And uh, I feel really bad about it, even talking about it. I feel just oh god, what did I do that for? And it's a learning experience, Jeremy. Whatever doesn't kill us makes us stronger. Exactly. And you know, and I take full responsibility. But there was a player at the table who I don't think really bought into the vibe of the game. Right. 
Because you know that's that's neither here nor there. Like I just I don't think that that it was it was, it was a woman. I don't think she was having a good time. Sure. And as a result, I think I kind of railroaded some of the other players because she was throwing me off my game because I was trying to placate her and kind of right. draw her in. Right. So I spent too much time and energy on her and not enough time and energy moving the plot forward. And then I had to rush it in the third act, and I railroaded the storyline in the third act, and I shouldn't have done that. Bad so, Jeremy. That yeah, I know. <laughs> I feel so bad about it. <laughs> And I actually, I really do. But uh, that—that's why it, why it happened. And I'm, I think I'm fortunate in that regard because I haven't seen this, the ugly side of conventions, like some of the stuff you hear about coming out of packs. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Like uh, you can, uh, perhaps you can direct me to somebody who can tell a firsthand uh, firsthand account. But that's great. I'm really. It makes me happy to hear somebody say they haven't read because I'm in the same boat in terms of I've never actually had any of that. But I know that that uh, there are a number of people. Hopefully, who I'll be able to get on the guest the, uh, the guest list on the next uh, couple of of episodes that can tell me some. Real, uh, some real doozies um, of Morgan Ellis, <laughs> particularly who I've been, who Morgan's I've been saying, oh, don't tell me that one. No, don't tell me that one. Just, just wait. We'll save that up for the show so I can have an authentic, authentic reaction. Okay. So, what's yeah. the best con and uh, and why? Or the best cons and what about the particular? We sort of touched on this already, but I'm really yeah. interested in the in the what is it that makes a, a con really good and what you might look for um, before you went to a, a con to if you've got a limited budget, whether that be financial or or right. temporal. Well, well you might con going is not cheap to begin with. No, sure. Um, there's ways to save money on it, but it's never a, a inexpensive prospect for anyone. So sure. financially, you know, if, if you don't make a lot of money, be prepared to make some sacrifices during the year. Because yeah, sure. I'm fortunately in a position now where it's not that much of a burden. I can do it as much as I want, which mm-hmm. is very nice. But mm-hmm. I was definitely in that position uh, a number of years ago. And just, you know, you got you to gotta, you gotta pay the piper. But mm-hmm. There are some cons that financially are less of a burden than others. Um, sure. The smaller cons, like, and I keep going back to the well on this one, but Go Play Northwest is, is well, Big Bad Con is also kind of, is, is in this category, but uh, Go Play Northwest was in it first. It's my, the con I won't miss. Sure. It's, uh, it's a short flight for me, and that makes it easy, and they generally have inexpensive housing options up there, which makes it, makes it good. But what makes a good con for me is just the vibe. And it sure. can happen anywhere. It's 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 a matter of alchemy, and you can stack the deck to get the, the right vibe that you want. Because up up there, it's it's a story gamer crowd, and it's small, and they have a no gamer left behind policy. So like they will make sure everybody's in a game, even if the, the con organizers have to start one themselves. Right. And because they're willing to do that, that means that the people they attract also have the same vibe, and like everybody's there to have a good time. Everybody's there to help everybody else, but they're also ex- ex- experienced story gamers. And right. The caliber of play up there is just phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Now, it's not, a, it's not a function of small gaming because the last, not this past year, but the year before, uh, Games on Demand at Gen Con had the same vibe. All right. It was amazing. I loved Games on Demand that year because it wasn't like it was this year where it was a victim of its own success. It was small enough where you got that, that, that critical mass of people, but not so big that it was so big that they couldn't care about every individual. And I think that's where the sweet spot lies. Right. So uh, if you were going to, so, so you would say that um, don't necessarily look for the biggest or the smallest con, but mm-hmm. look for the, the types of games that are being offered or would you suggest oh, looking uh, for particular authors or? Yes, because, you know, going into it, you're, you don't know what kind of people are up there. So, you know, look at the games, look at the descriptions, you know, and, they, and be prepared to take a chance too. you know, because like there's some games I'd never heard of that I, that I, I've rolled the dice on up there and they were great. Yeah, and I wonder is there? Do you think that it's worthwhile um, 
if you've not tried them before, seeking out story games. Because in my experience, um, when it comes to a, a story game, uh, mm. you're going to attract a certain crowd. But the other thing about it is, if you haven't done it before, um, everybody's invested in having a good time because there's no pressure on any one person to bring it. So if mm-hmm. you have a group of, say, five people, and two of them or, or three of them are having an on day or are really invested in what's going to happen, then that will that will, that will will make it that will make it good, right? Whereas mm-hmm. if you've got a storyteller or a, a GM or whatever that's having an off day or, you know, like happens to be Jeremy Tidwell and you're just, you know, you're punching through a story and, and mm-hmm. there's upset women all around the place, you know, that, that can be... <laughs> There's a trail of, of tears, and <laughs> <laughs> you're destroying fun left, right, and center. Like you're doing, like you, yeah, like if, if your game master's doing a Jeremy Tidwell, then you know there's not really, uh, <laughs> there's not much that you can, uh, there's not much you can do about it. But if you're in a story game, then yeah. you know people will pick up and carry, and because people see these connections, you know, it's uh-huh. it's just. You know, I think that that's something to look for. It's, it's try at least try a, a story game because if you have one really good game at the con, that's mostly what you're gonna what, what you're gonna remember, remember. Yeah. right? For sure. Yeah, so. and con game and uh, con games, um, story games certainly are more resilient that way because they don't res- rely on one person consistently. Mm. So yeah, it's just it's just the 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 lack of experience with where the lines are drawn yes. and the fact that there aren't lines like we discussed before, like. Yeah. That's the big thing, and that can kill a game. So yes, it can. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that there. Yeah, that's uh, and uh, the Nixes, well, husband and wife team that were playing that fiasco game. They hadn't played before, but but they were mm-hmm. awesome because if you go into it, say, look, I've not played these types of games before, so I'm just gonna, I'm just not gonna try and force it. I'm gonna see what I'm gonna see what happens. You very quickly get the idea. So give mm-hmm. give story games a go. I don't have any particular feelings one way or the other about story games or, or more. Tra- when I say traditional, I mean more sort of structured games. But you give mm-hmm. give story games a go. I don't think you I don't think you'd regret it. So uh, what are your rules for, and what are the best role-playing snacks? <laughs> I have uh, some very hard and fast rules for myself for role-playing snacks that I don't put on to other people. Um, I find that people flag in the, thir- in the second or third act of a, of a particularly a four-hour game session, which is sure. my, my chosen milieu is the four-hour game session. Sure, yeah. And I find people flag around hour three or so, right. or two and a half. So stuff... That's not too heavily salted, but with some decent salt because I'll get their blood pressure up and like you know their energy level will go up. Sure. Uh, caffeine, of course, is is the natural go to sugar, but sugar. I tend to stay away from sugary stuff because people tend to crash quickly after eating sugar right. to get a, to get a boost. Well, you've really given this some thought. I, well, I <laughs> I think about nutrition a lot now because I had a I had a, a health scare a number of years ago involving my own blood pressure. Right. So I put a lot of thought into particularly with with sodium levels, but nutrition in general, mm-hmm. and I have applied that to like you know the dynamic of how games tend to go. Right. Because well, there yeah. are physical things you have to keep in mind with, with players' bodies, especially as we're getting older. Like, and also being in my 40s, you know, like I'm keenly aware of the amount of energy it takes to run or play a role-playing game. Right. Yeah, you've given that a lot more thought than I thought. I thought you were going to say Twinkies are awesome, but everybody has to bring one box. Every- yeah, so, so um, here's a few um, versus questions for you. We've already done a little bit about Harrison Ford and, and uh, Hogwarts and Francis Xavier's school for, for gifted uh, children or whatever the particular name is is for it. But, I um, thought that was it, yeah. You hit the nail on the head there. Well, well played me. I've never read an X-Man comic in my life. The closest I've come is I think I saw Wolverine. Um, so uh, Luke Skywalker or Harry Potter? Wow, they're both such Mary Sues you can't fail. Um, I would go with Luke Skywalker because he got his hand cut off. 
he's, he's, he's had some bullshit in his life. <laughs> he's, he's overcome some shit. You don't think that losing both your parents as a, uh, as a small child and having the world's most hated man looking for, to uh, kill you um, qualifies? I suppose Darth Vader's pretty, uh, yeah. pretty odious as well. But they hang a lampshade on Harry Potter's shitty life before he goes into uh, the Academy. Mm. Like, well, you know, you want to talk about, you know, an orphan who's had a bad life and who's being raised by people who don't care about him. He's actually got it pretty good. I don't know. Those Dursleys. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there could be spiders under those stairs. He's wearing all yeah. of Dudley's old clothes. Somebody finally tries to get a hold of him and his uncle stopping that. Anyway, um, <laughs> so, so here's an aside question. I've, I've asked this one before, and, and, I, and Ryan Macklin answered it for me but then i realized that he'd answered he actually he answered the question that i'd asked but it wasn't actually the question that i wanted to know the answer to which is what is it that darth vader actually wants oh he's a complex character who has unfortunately been kind of hosed by the the more recent movies hmm. um i think he uh the dark side represented a monkey on his back right that she finally threw off in Jedi, and you, we see like his real motivations revealed. I think he was playing along when Luke entered the picture. I think he started playing along with Palpatine because he wanted to get to his kid, and he right. knew that the only way that he could guarantee Luke's safety was that to be there when Palpatine interviewed him to make sure that you know it's like I might have to kill the Emperor. Mm. Okay, I don't yeah. want to do that, but I think that like. And, and as, as much as I badmouth the first three movies, the scenes where, 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 where Christensen plays him when he's first in the army, he finds out that what well, they told him that his wife and children are dead. Right. And, he, and Darth Vader weeps. Mm. I think that set the tone. Right. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about it from that standpoint before because I'm, um, I'm sort of hooked up on that, that bit where the Emperor's like blasting Luke with his lightning out of his fingers. <laughs> And uh, Luke's kind of writhing around. Then Darth Vader's kind of like his head's twitching back and forth. Like he's actually at that point making that yes. making that decision. And I don't. And exactly, yes, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Right. And do you think that uh, when he felt the presence of, of Luke um, during um, the A New Hope, like do you think then he just thought there's something out here? I need to find out more about that, or. Um, because, I think he knew what it was, and he just kept his mouth shut. Right. And do you think that throughout that he was trying to get a hold of him because he wanted to try and, like, get him onto his side? Or No, I think he knew that Luke represented his one chance at uh, at uh, at um, becoming human again, at, at, uh, what's, uh, at redemption. Right. I think it boils back to in, in A New Hope when they're, going, they're doing the Death Star trench run, and he's chasing after Luke. And he's like, the Force is strong with this one. Right, sure. Sums up here. And then I think at some point when he identified who Luke was, I think that's where he turned. Because before that, he was the Sith Lord because he had nothing else to live for at that mm. point. I've got right. this power. I can't exactly off myself because maybe you even thought about it because, mm. you know, I survived lava. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, this is all I've got left. It's a question of identity. It's like I'm not a father or a husband anymore. This is all I have left. And I'm not a Jedi. Right. I might as well serve the emperor because this gives me purpose. But then, then he finds out his kid is still alive. Yes, yeah, for sure. So and then it, I think the I think the trench run is the seminal moment. Right. Um, so Princess Leia or Arwen? Arwen. Oh, Arwen. Oh, Leia. She's a more nuanced character. 
I, and I never read the book, so um, and I know I'm showing my I'm really violating geek crap by admitting this, but I've never read Lord of the Rings. Right. But what I saw in the films was she was manipulated by a lot of people. Right. I think that in particular her father. I, right. I think Elrond just pulled a mind job on her, and I didn't like Elrond after that because yeah, he was telling her the truth, but man, man, it was ugly. Yeah, it's yeah, that's yeah. You at least you haven't uh, said that you hate Lord of the Rings. Ryan Macklin has read it, and then he said he, <laughs> said, he said he hated it, and you've just come out and said that you have that you haven't read it. But yeah, that's um. If it's like The Hobbit, I know I'm not going to like it. Uh, so you read The Hobbit and didn't like it? Yes, especially the, the the first couple of chapters when every five pages they're stopping to eat sandwiches wrapped in wax paper. <laughs> and it goes into intense detail about that. It's like, yeah, that's, on. That, that's And that's, the, um, that's what Ryan was saying. He didn't like about it too because he said that it was like a like a Victorian travelogue, you know, because, it's, <laughs> there's, because people haven't had these experiences. It's like Charles Dickens' writing. Um, there are a lot of dis- excellent descriptions, but they're descriptions of things that in a modern novel would not you wouldn't know, touch on. Yeah, because we all know what this looks like. We know we all know what that looks like. It's kind of like this um, that sort of ri- not riddle, I guess, but that sort of um, parable about the uh, about the people feeling the elephant in the dark room. Mm-hmm. You know, I've got, it's got this and it's got that. You know, like we just say it's an elephant. You know, it's just it's a fucking elephant, right? Like, because you can, mm-hmm. but but we know that. But these people that are that are feeling this elephant in the dark room don't know what an elephant is. So we've got to go through this whole procedure. And I think that that's what uh, Dickens' had writing has a lot of. And well, also, Dickens was paid by the word too, so that didn't help. That, that, yeah, for sure. Yeah, Bleak House, right? Um, and you, <laughs> and Nicholas Nickleby too. Yeah, yeah. And you and and same with uh, with uh, Tolkien, but the. This the descriptions. I happen to like it. I mean, I, I like. I think that Fellowship of the Ring is is my least favorite. I think Two Towers is probably my my favorite of the of the three books. But but yeah, mm-hmm. that um, he sort of got away a little bit more from that discovery because it was almost like he was he wrote it and then never went went back. It was like he was just, he was he was discovering um, mm-hmm. Middle Earth as he was writing it and then left all that right. discovery in. Right, the sort of stuff that. That um, and I'm not trying to in any way hold myself as, <laughs> up as being better than than Tolkien here, but um, the sort of work that you do ahead of time, but may not actually ever come up in the story that you're telling. You know, you like you you put it back there and it colours and flavours things, but you never mm-hmm. actually explicitly um, investigate. And I think a lot of that investigation was was left in. But again, I think that. Um, and I'm going to argue with my, myself here because I'm not totally sure how I feel about it. <laughs> there are a lot of tropes that exist in fantasy fiction writing now. So mm-hmm. we can say things and then we know what it means. So right. Because he did it first and he took the time to make a lot right. of Right. And, and that yeah. is like a meta story because there's, you can't write anything other than what's in there. Right. Mm-hmm. Or if you can, it's, it's very, it's, it's sort of contrived. And so in reading all of these other fantasy books, these mm-hmm. fantasy tropes that you develop, because it's unlikely the first fantasy book you read is going to be Lord of the Rings, because it's pretty dense, intimidating for a young kid. And I know that that uh, Chris Bailey episode five was saying like it was one of the first things that one of the first pieces of fantasy that he ever read. But you know we've got these tropes and this assumed knowledge, and so once you've got all these tropes ingrained, and then you read Lord of the Rings, you kind of like, you know, I know all this stuff, I know all this is, but mm-hmm. but 
that was but it had to be done. And you've read well exactly. And you've the yeah. only reason that you've got these traces is because this this book was read. So it's kind of a little bit unfair in in, a, in some respects to to judge mm-hmm. it based upon other. But that's all you can do. You can only oh, base right. it upon yeah. your own it experience. Right? My hatred of it is unfair because he had to do. It, you're exactly right. He had to do all those things, but. I do have all that solid foundation, so it makes mm. it kind of a, dr- a drudge for me. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, but no, I don't I, think it's badly written. You know, no. the same thing happened when the John Carter movie came out. Yes, yes. Everybody compared it to all this other stuff. It's like, oh, it's just a ripoff of X, Y, and Z. It's like, you fools. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and those things are derived from John Carter. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but that's the, that's the, the movie going public. It, they just don't, you know, that's yeah. generally, I mean, and, and there'll be other people like, be giving us a hard time for you know our opinion and, and everything comes from your own you can only go from your own perspective you don't oh, have absolutely. the ability to just sort of wipe out your your previous memories and and judge things impartially which yeah which don't even get me into critics but anyway um so dumbledore or gandalf uh gandalf because of the transformations he goes through you and in what respect uh, when he goes from Gandalf the Grey to Gandalf the White, and he has to die to do it, and like his memory is stripped away, and he becomes a completely different person and even more powerful. That's right. just an interesting story arc to me. Whereas Dumbledore is just like the the powerful but doddering old man who's like kind of got Harry's back and is his grandfather. Right. Oh, fair enough. Fair enough. I, I was uh, I was thinking probably you would go with uh, with uh, Dumbledore there. So you're confounding me left and right. Um, so. <laughs> Because I've seen the movies and I like the movies. But, right. You know, yeah. uh, so, yeah. so, if you had one role-playing related wish, what would it be? Wow. Um, for Evil Hat Games to get a silent benefactor that pays them five million dollars a year to develop stuff. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Jeremy Tidwell. <laughs> That's it for episode thirty-six of Penny Red. For any questions or comments arising from the show, Daniel at HazardGaming.com. Please be sure to check the show notes for Jeremy's Doctor Who-inspired Apocalypse World hack called Companions. So until next week, keep talking the walk. Mm-hmm.